Good afternoon to all of you. It's a privilege to be here with you on a very beautiful Sabbath day. I'm tempted to make a few more comments on uh, Mr. Ames' comments. He was mentioning about getting a sweater years ago and uh, the used clothing. I remember a number of years ago when I was teaching in Pasadena, one of the faculty members was at lunch and he was kind of waving his fingers around and the person across the table said, boy, that's a beautiful ring you have. He said, yeah, I thought so. Where'd you get it? He said, I found it in the locker room. And the person said, I lost one <laughs> just like that <laughs> in the locker room. <laughs> so you can never tell about some of these things. <clears throat> it is exciting to be here with you. It was very exciting last Sabbath. Uh, flew up to Chicago on Friday. And then we had a combined service on Saturday morning at a... Uh, motel just near the airport uh, in Chicago. And then about uh, we had a lunch there together. We had about 60-some people were there from the um, <clears throat> Milwaukee and Chicago congregations. And then we had uh, about 100 people then showed up for the lecture. And some of them got there about 1 o'clock, so they were there very early. Uh, we had a PowerPoint presentation on what is ahead for America, talked about the migration of the Israelite tribes and how you can identify America in Bible prophecy. Had an intermission, people came up and talked, and I didn't notice that many people that left, maybe two, three, or four. But some very interesting comments were made by people both at the intermission and at the um, <clears throat> after the talk. We actually had a gentleman who was either a minister or a teacher with the Eastern Orthodox Church was there. And he had a few questions he wanted to ask, but it was, it was very interesting to see the response. In the sermon today, I would like to talk about several subjects that to some people are very interesting and very exciting. And to other people, these same subjects are sobering and in some cases, scary. For other people, they're boring and irrelevant because some people think these subjects are confusing and nothing more than anybody else's uh, opinion. So they really don't want to talk about it. The subjects that I want to talk about today involve history and prophecy. So, so some are going to say, oh, boy, and others are going to say, oh, no. <laughs> You know, studies have been done that show that the average person is really not that interested in history. I remember comments made about history classes whenever I was in college. Uh, uh, some certain professors were labeled as very interesting and some were labeled as very boring. But the average person really isn't that interested in many cases. I don't think that's the case in the Church of God. I think many of our people are interested in history and are interested in prophecy. Many people today are probably more interested in Bible prophecy because it's about the future. It's about things that are going to happen and people are interested in the future. However, both of these subjects, history and prophecy, whether you regard them as boring or whether you regard them as exciting or confusing or whatever, these are subjects that are increasingly relevant to the world in which we are living. History and prophecy are increasingly relevant to the world in which we are living. 
And if we ignore these subjects, we are going to ignore them to our own peril. What I'd like to ask as we begin here, why are these subjects relevant today? Why are the subjects of history and prophecy relevant today? All you have to do is watch the news, read the newspaper, and you pick up very quickly that people today recognize things are happening in our Western nations and things are happening in the world that are different. Changes are taking place that we have not seen ever in our society. They recognize powerful forces are building in Europe. Powerful forces are being unleashed in the Middle East. And people are not sure where these things are going to go. I was reading in a paper just the other day and says one person was making the observation. He says there is more anger today in America than we have seen in decades. And we elected a president who campaigned on the need for change. And just as he was being elected, the bottom fell out of the economy. And people began talking about a potential global financial meltdown. And then the American government started handing out money, billions of dollars to banks and billions of dollars to major corporations. And then they began telling the banks what they were going to have to do. See, the Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender. They began telling major corporations in America, you can't do this, you're going to have to do that. Yeah, these things have not happened before in recent times. The new administration is now pushing a health care reform bill that many people are not happy about. They're not excited about it. You've seen these town hall meetings on television. <clears throat> people are scared. Their pocketbooks are going to be affected. They're concerned about what is going to happen. The new administration is pushing the same-sex marriage thing and trying to get people to accept homosexuality as normal. And churches are jumping on the bandwagon. The Episcopal Church recently has approved accepting homosexual men and women into the ministry. The Lutheran Church just this past week has done the same thing. And some in those denominations are saying, this is horrible. They're actually turning their back on the Bible and what it says. And people are talking about, we may have to leave this organization. The same thing's happening in England. same thing's happening in Canada. Same thing is happening in Australia. People are watching changes today that they're very concerned about, very angry about, very anxious about. In the world scene, we're seeing Europe continue to move together. And they want to play a major role on the world stage. That's their goal. It seems like half the money in the world has wound up in China. And they're sitting there with this big pot of money. America is in debt to China today. And it's not wise to become in debt to a nation that doesn't necessarily share your goals. 
Because again, the servant, excuse me, the borrower is going to be servant to the lender. If they loan us a lot of money and then they decide to invade Taiwan or something, we decide we're not going to let you do that, all they have to say is who's holding your debt? You want us to pull the plug on your economy? You know, while um, uh, Europe and while China are moving ahead with their influence, the influence of America and Britain is beginning to decline and go down, just like Bible prophecy said that it would. At the same time, pressures are building up in the Middle East. You know, Iran is building nuclear bombs and missiles for a delivery system, and they're claiming we want to wipe out Israel. We want to just wipe them off the map. And then you've got people over there talking about a Muslim Messiah that's going to come on the scene and unite the Muslim world and basically convert the rest of the world to the Islamic religion. Things are happening in the world that have people on edge. And many Christians today view what is happening in apocalyptic terms. In other words, they're concerned that the second coming is, is not too far away. People are talking about President Obama being the Antichrist. And books are coming out that there's a Muslim Antichrist coming along. These are things that are being thrown around today, ideas that are circulating today. I think it's also interesting that in Matthew 24, the first couple of verses in that chapter, Jesus' disciples 2,000 years ago said, Jesus, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What did Jesus say? You're down through that chapter. He talks about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and disease epidemics. But what was the first sign that he talked about? He said, many will come in my name and deceive many. He's talking about religious deception will be one of the things that is going to announce the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I was talking with a young person recently, and he came up to me with some questions. He says, here's a list of 20 prophets on television, and they're all saying a bunch of things. Which one is true and which ones aren't? I wasn't familiar with a number of them, but I got on, tele or I got on the Internet the other day and started looking, and it's a circus menagerie there. People yelling and screaming and claiming they've had visions since they were eight years old and all this and that and the other thing. And he's trying to figure out which is right and which is wrong. But Jesus said one of the signs that's going to announce my coming is this religious deception is going to spread around the world. And it can do that very easily today with the Internet, with radio, with television, and the various ways of uh, printing uh, materials. He says, many are going to come in my name and deceive many. The question I would like to ask right now is, how can you avoid being deceived in this end time period of religious deception that Jesus said is coming? Is coming. How can you avoid being deceived? And the answer is going to lie, brethren, in understanding history and understanding Bible prophecy. 
I want to talk just a little bit about some misconceptions about history and prophecy. As I've already alluded to in the sermon, many people think history is boring because sometimes the teachers were boring. And it's a lot more interesting and exciting to watch uh, science fiction on television or watch uh, Indiana Jones or something like that, which plays on historical themes. But that's a lot more exciting than sitting down and reading a history book, which can be pretty boring. History's boring because, you know, those events happened a long time ago. And how can stuff that happened a long time ago be relevant to us today? Many people think that way. And yet, you know, historians have made the comment that history tends to repeat itself. History tends to repeat itself. As one person made the comment, he says, history tends to repeat itself, but not until after it changes its costume. It's not going to be exactly the same way. But major things will repeat. Historians have also commented that if for those that don't learn the lessons of history, they're bound to repeat the mistakes of history. History repeats itself. And if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're going to wind up repeating the mistakes of history. And we're going to talk about some of that today because the Bible talks about that. What about Christians? Is a knowledge of history important to New Testament Christians? You might just look through the Old Testament and grab a chunk of pages. How much of the Old Testament is history? About half of it. How much of the New Testament is history? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the history of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The book of Acts is a historical record of the New Testament church. A number of the issues that Paul addresses in his epistles are things that were happening during the days of the apostles, the early church age. Why is this important? And many people think the Old Testament doesn't, it's not relative anymore. But notice what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'd encourage you to read the whole first part of that chapter. But Paul mentions in verse 1, let's just look at a couple things. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about a historical event in the history of Israel. They came out of Egypt. God parted the waters of the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked through. Now, you've got to go back to Exodus to fill in the details, but that's what Paul is referring to here. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It was symbolic going through the Red Sea. And he talks about a number of other issues uh, that he pulls from the Old Testament. But why is he talking about this? Why is this in the New Testament? Verse 11, Paul says to the New Testament church in Corinth, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. These historical examples are for our instruction today, and especially for those living at the end of the age. How does that fit together? We'll talk about that today. 
But a big chunk of the Bible is history. And another big chunk of the Bible is prophecy. It was estimated that somewhere between 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31% of the Bible is prophecy. Much of that is dual. And much of that applies to the end of the age. The Old Testament prophets were basically Old Testament figures. Many people believe, well, that's just ancient history. It's not relative today. But as we have pointed out many times and others have pointed out, prophecy is history written in advance. Prophecy is history written in advance. It's describing events that are going to happen. You go back and read in, I think it's in Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 46, some of the prophecies there, where God says, let's go to Isaiah 46 for just a minute. <clears throat> You know, these prophecies in the Bible are nothing to sneeze at. They're nothing to ignore. These prophecies are literally proof that God exists. And they're proof that the Bible is the inspired word of God. In verse 8 of Isaiah 46, God is speaking through Isaiah, and this is a challenge to critics. It says, remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, get real, face the facts. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. You know, these leering idols that pagans worship are hunks of stone, they're hunks of wood. God is not in those things. Now, we were in New Zealand a number of years ago and went through a Maori exhibit. They had these carved idols with uh, a mother-of-pearl eyes. And we were told that the mother of pearl is there so the spirits that are in that idol can see. It was scary. And then these guys and girls got up there and did their dance and sticking their tongue out and grimacing their face and so on. And it was the person I was there with. My wife was there with me. We had another person with us. The guy looked at me and said, this is, this is weird. He says, this is demonic. And it really was. Because those people believed there were spirits in those carved pieces of wood. And they needed these mother of pearl as their eyes to actually see. Uh, but when you watch what was happening, it was demonic. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end or the outcome from the very beginning. Predicting the future from ancient times. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand. Again, the Hebrew word here for counsel is essen. It means my plan, my purpose. What I have decreed is going to take place. And we read what God has decreed, and we read about His purpose in the Scriptures, in prophecies. You see, prophecy is history written in advance. And as I mentioned before, if we ignore these prophecies, we ignore them to our own peril, which could lead us into trouble that could be fatal eventually because we're just not paying attention to things that God has revealed. There was an idea that floated through the church in the past decade or so where the comment was made, prophecy is bad news. Wars, famine, stuff like that. We don't want to talk about bad news. We want to talk about good news. God loves you. 
You need to love Jesus. You need to talk about those things. It's interesting what Jesus talked about. Jesus talked about bad news, and he talked about good news. Jesus spoke about prophecy on numerous occasions in the New Testament, in prophecies that apply to us today. Now, some people in the last decade or two have made fun of prophecy. That if you're interested in prophecy, you got a disease. It's called prediction addiction. And you better get over that disease. And the cure for the disease is don't talk about prophecy. <laughs> uh, don't be interested in it. Just ignore it and it'll all work out fine. Well, that's not what we read in the Scriptures as we will read today. Sometimes people think, well, prophecy is for cities and nations about events that you're over there that don't affect us. We're going to go through some New Testament prophecies today that are going to affect us, that relate to you and relate to me. Now, those are some misconceptions about history and prophecy, but let's look at a few facts of history and some facts of prophecy. You're familiar with these scriptures, so we don't need to turn to all of these, but I want to just mention several. In Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, he says, you know, we need to live by every word of God. We need to live by every word of God. If half of the Old Testament and a big chunk of the New Testament is history and is there for our admonition, we'd better be familiar with what is there. If almost a third of the Bible is prophecy, we better be familiar with those prophecies. Because if we're not, there will be consequences. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy the prophets and prophecy. He said, I came to fulfill, and that word means to complete, to be able to explain it fully. To magnify the law. You can look that up in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 21. It says, He will come and magnify the law, expand it. You know, the, the Jews understood and the ancient Israelites understood it was wrong to kill. Jesus said, It's also wrong to run your neighbor down, to call him a fool, call him an idiot, because there's a spiritual dimension to the physical part of the law. And Jesus explained that in Matthew chapter 5. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to magnify it. I didn't come to destroy the prophets, but literally to explain the meaning of those prophecies so that people can understand. Let's turn to John 15. This is where Jesus is talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And Jesus was running over a number of fundamental things, fundamental teachings about Christianity that he wanted his disciples to understand before trouble came and before pressure came on them. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, now Jesus had been talking about a number of things, about being hated by the world and so on. He says, These things that he'd been talking about, I have spoken to you, 
that you should not be made to stumble. When these things begin to happen, I don't want you to get discouraged. I don't want you to become disillusioned. And this is basically what happened to many people. Whenever the church split in 1995, and whenever we've had other splits, you talk to people. You have read uh, letters that have come in. I've talked to people personally. I said, you know, I was disillusioned. When a minister went this way and a minister went that way and another minister started preaching things that we knew were wrong. And their conclusion, well, this can't be God's church, so I'm out of here. But Jesus said, look, I'm telling you these things beforehand because I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to become disillusioned. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. You know, Paul was running around, throwing people in jail, killing people, because he thought they were doing wrong until Jesus Christ kind of came into his life very dramatically and said, Paul, what are you doing? Paul said, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus who you persecute. says, they will put you out of the synagogue. When people kill you, they're going to think they're doing God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, Paul was a very religious person before he was converted. But Paul had to come to realize, I didn't know the real God. I didn't know Jesus Christ. And that was many of you before you came into the church of God. You may have been a nice person, a very thoughtful person, but until God opened your mind to begin to understand His truth, you didn't grasp what it was all about. I didn't. And many others have not. But notice in verse 4, why did Jesus tell this to His disciples? But these things I've told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. you know, Jesus gave these prophecies about what was coming because he loved his disciples. God is a God of love. He warned his disciples ahead of time so that they would be prepared for what was coming. This is how God works. You can go back to Genesis 18, verse 17. Just jot it in your notes. God makes this statement about Abraham. He says, you know, Abraham is called several places in the Bible a friend of God. And God says, well, I, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? His conclusion was, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do. He's my friend. I'm going to reveal to Abraham what I'm going to do. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it mentions there that God does nothing. He's not going to do anything without first revealing what he's going to do to his servants, the prophets. He's going to make it clear what is going to come. And he's going to have servants explaining what is going to come. Because God loves his people. He loves human beings. He doesn't want us to suffer unnecessarily. Therefore, he's going to let the world know what's coming 
so people can make decisions and avoid the problems that are coming. This is how God operates. He makes clear what's coming. And then when things happen and people make a bad decision, they will realize, blew this one, but I know God is forgiving and I'm going to get back on track. God is a loving God. That's why prophecies are in the Bible. They're not there to scare us. They're there to hopefully help us avoid problems that are coming. You know, when our boys were little, and I would have to correct them, I'd spank them, and then I'd hug them. And then once they calmed down, I would ask them, how can we avoid this situation? <laughs> what can we do so we don't have to go through this again? I said, it hurt your bottom, it hurt my hand. I said, we'd both like to avoid this, if at all possible. <laughs> what can we learn so that we don't have to do this again? And they would come up with some very interesting suggestions. <laughs> you know, these are learning experiences, and God will use prophetic events to teach human beings lessons. You know, he's not up there with his big fly swatter, I haven't got any today, I just can't wait. You know. No. He's there giving us advice, revealing certain things and prophecies, hopefully that we can learn and grow. So what can we learn from history and Bible prophecy about the times in which we're living that can help us learn from the past, understand the present, and be prepared for the future? What I'd like to do in the remainder of the sermon today is turn to the book of Revelation. Because the book of Revelation is about prophecy, about future events that are going to happen. And some people think that this is, this is John's prophecies. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed these things to John. So what John wrote were things that Jesus told him. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. God revealed to John things that were going to begin to come to pass in his day and ultimately would come to pass down at the end of the age. It says, John... He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. These things are coming from Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Jesus Christ is revealing these things. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John is writing letters to seven churches, which we're going to go through in just a minute. What we need to understand is these letters are prophetic. They're symbolic of several things. And we're not the only church that understands this. John is writing to seven churches, and the things that he described appear to describe situations in these seven churches that existed towards the end of the first century. So John is writing about real things. Another way of looking at these 
letters, seven letters, is that they represent seven prophetic eras that the church of God would go through. Not just church history per se, but the history of God's church. And Jesus Christ is outlining in a general form what is going to happen to the church that he started on the day of Pentecost. And there are valuable lessons that we can learn from these seven churches and the seven letters that Paul wrote. Another way of looking at these letters is that they describe lessons and situations that will exist at almost any time in any church down through history. So there's a number of different ways of looking at this. You know, a number of people wonder why the Worldwide Church of God went off in a different direction. One of the reasons was that the young men that uh, got involved began to view the book of Revelation through a different set of glasses. And there are about four different ways of looking at the book of Revelation. One is that it's only describing things that happened in the first century. It's only talking about contemporary history. It's not about the future. It's just about uh, the church and the Roman Empire. Another way of looking at the book is that it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. It's about good and evil. It's not about any particular person. It's not about any particular church. It's just about general themes, good and evil. That's the way liberal theologians look at the book of Revelation today, using these first two lenses. The other two ways of looking at the book of Revelation is that it's um, talking about um, historical events. It's giving you a historical overview of the future of the church. So there's a historical dimension that goes off into the future. And a fourth way is that it's focused primarily on the future. Now, these last two ways basically break down the first three or four chapters. Actually, the first three chapters are talking about historical events in the immediate future. And then the last uh, chapters, chapters 4 through 22, are really talking about things off into the future. And as a church, we've basically looked at the book of Revelation through these latter two uh, perspectives. But when the young men took over the worldwide church of God, they shifted gears, shifted the paradigm, so to speak, and began looking through a more liberal approach, the first two views. It's just spiritual. See, that's much less threatening to everybody. Because when it talks about a harlot in Revelation 17, if you're just talking about spiritual things, then it's, it's nobody in particular. It's no particular church. It's just kind of spiritual. But if you view the book and what is said through historical perspectives and off into the future, it's talking about a church. It's talking about real people. So depending on your paradigm, how you look at the book is going to determine how you understand the book. And one of the reasons we understand it very differently than some who stayed in the Worldwide Church of God is we're using two different lenses to look at the book. I think it's important to understand these things. But let's go and look at each one of these churches, these eras. Some people don't believe they're eras, but I've studied this enough, and there's so many parallels. It is talking about eras that God's church would go through, not church history for everybody, 
but the church of God would go through these things. And we can ask the question, what is the lesson that we can learn? What's the lesson you can learn that I can learn today going through these seven letters? Let's go to chapter 2. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, and this is talking basically about the church of the apostles. In the first century, maybe up to about the middle of the second century, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, talking about Jesus Christ. I know your works. And we have in the Bible the works of the apostles. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, the epistles, both Paul's epistles and the general epistles. These are the works of the apostolic era. Your labor... Paul mentioned, I labored abundantly among you. Your patience. Paul was thrown in jail numerous times. So was Peter. They had to endure. They had to be patient. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And there were many people running around trying to subvert true believers, introduce different ideas. You can't bear those things. You don't like those. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. How did they test them? There are people running around today claiming to be apostles and prophets and ministers of God and so on. How do you test them? How do you examine? How do you evaluate? Let me give you a couple of principles very quickly. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, it says, If they speak not according to this word, there is no truth in them. There's no light in them. They're not being led by God if they're not speaking according to the Scriptures. Now, we just read a Scripture in chapter 1, verse 3, where Jesus Christ said, Blessed are is he or she who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. You know, over the years, the Catholic Church says, don't read the Bible because you'll get confused. You let the priest tell you what it says, but don't you read it because you'll get confused. And yet Jesus said, blessed is he or she that reads and hears these scriptures. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, study Study diligently to show yourselves approved unto God so that you're able to rightly divide, explain, and understand the Scriptures. To do that, you have to understand the book. You have to read it, not have somebody else tell you what it says. In the worldwide church of God, people began to ridicule prophecy. Well, if you're interested in prophecy, you've got a disease. and You need to get over that disease. Get a shot or something. Yet what did Paul say? First Thessalonians 5.20. What did he say? Don't despise prophecy. Don't make fun of it. Don't play games with it. Don't laugh and ridicule. You know, I've mentioned this before, and some of you saw it. There was a minister down in Big Sandy. came and gave a sermon about three hours in length or something. Took some articles that we used to publish, ripped them up, threw them on the floor, and stomped on them. He said, that's what I think about what we used to publish. 
Paul said, don't despise prophecy. Don't take it lightly. Don't play games with it. Don't make fun of it. See, people that tell you those things are not being led by God's Spirit. They're not being led by Jesus Christ. Yet individuals claim that, uh, you know, Christ is leading us. You just have to follow us. And Mr. Armstrong used to say, and what we say today is, don't believe us, believe your Bible. You check into history. See if that history corresponds with the Scriptures. If they speak not according to this word, the book says, don't believe them. Your Protestants today, in the Anglican Church, in the Lutheran Church, in the Episcopal Church, are telling people that same-sex marriages are fine. And you can serve in the ministry. If you're a gay man or a gay woman, the President of the United States is pushing this agenda. And that the Bible says this is wrong. And there are people in those denominations saying, our denomination is turning its back on the Bible. Ignoring plain scriptures that are there. Now they want to be tolerant and inclusive and understanding. But that's not what God says we're to do relative to some of these behaviors. You know, many Protestant theologians today and for years have been saying, well, Christmas is fine and Easter is fine. You know, we're not worshiping any pagan gods on those days. And yet the scriptures say, don't learn the way of the heathen. Don't ask how they worship their gods. You know, do what God has instructed you to do. Jesus Christ never kept those days. The apostles never did. The early church didn't until about 400 A.D., when the Catholic Church changed those things. See, this is how you have to evaluate, how you have to uh, look at some of these things. God is not a trinity. You read Paul's writings. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Paul says, greetings in the name of the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. He ignores the Holy Spirit if it is a person, but it's a power. So these are things that we have to do today. The early church had to do these things. You had Gnostics running around. And one of their big deals was the law is evil. The law is bad. It was given by that, that, that horrible God of the Old Testament. These were Gnostic ideas that were deceiving people. That's where these things came from. When you understand a little bit about history, you can understand where these people, where these things came from. It's no big secret. But they had to test and try and examine people that were claiming to be ministers of God. If you want some really interesting reading, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, about the first 13 verses, where it mentions Satan has his own ministers that are going to be teaching wrong things. And we've got to be very careful that we're not roped in by these things. Verse 3 goes on and says, You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Now, the apostolic church was working, doing things, preaching the gospel, traveling, being thrown in jail. But Paul, John says here, and this is towards the end of the first century, You have left your first love. 
you've left your first love. You might think back for just a little bit. How did you feel when you began to learn the truth of God? Were you excited? Were you a little scared? (laughs) When you began to understand the plan of God. I remember the first time that I heard the plan of God. The minister went through very quickly. I believe it was on the Feast of Trumpets. He just went very briefly through what each one of the Holy Days pictured. I'd never heard anything like that before. I'd kept Christmas. I'd kept Easter. I thought I was a good Christian. Then this guy, in five minutes, went through the plan of God. And when the sermon was over, a lady turned around, her guy behind me said, What do you think of the sermon? I said, Man, he just blew my mind. <laughs> I said, I've never heard anything like that that made so much sense. It was exciting. It was exciting. But John is saying to the church, he says, you've left your first love. Where are you? Did you have a first love? Do you need to have a first love? What have you let go of? I've talked to a number of people recently that were disillusioned and upset and angry when the churches came apart. Some went and began attending with Messianic Jews because they kept the Sabbath. Some went to the Seventh-day Adventists. And some went here and some went there. Some went back to the Baptist Church because they had a good music program. It was just all kind of things. But I've talked with a number of people recently saying, you know, I was angry and I went home and I didn't do anything or I did this or I did that. And I began to realize something's missing in my life. I began to pray and ask God, show me where your church is. Show me where I need to be. You know, Mr. Tyler mentioned a fellow living on one of the islands in the Pacific. He was very frustrated when the church came apart. He was praying one day by the beach. <laughs> he says, God, show me where your church is. And it was either a magazine came up in a bottle <laughs> or wound up in his mailbox the next day. It was just kind of like, whoa, there it is. You know, we, my wife and I were wondering what to do when things were coming apart. And we watched a couple of different people on television, finally saw Dr. Meredith and realized that's where it is. That's where it is. He's not playing games. That's where it is. But I asked the question because this is one of the lessons that we have the opportunity of learning. Have you left your first love? Have you left your first love? And the question, the answer is we need to get back on track. There's a work to do, a gospel to preach. We've got to grow. We've got to prepare to reign with Jesus Christ. Who is doing that? Where is it being done? You know, how can you contribute and help? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. I'm going to take the candlestick out of your hands. And I'm going to give it to someone who will do something with it. Now, that's pretty potent. That's pretty potent. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, who gets back on track, who gets focused in the right direction. I will give to eat from the tree of life. 
second letter, <clears throat> the letter to, the, to the, the next church, the church at Smyrna. This was a church that got caught in a transition. It was basically between the years 100 A.D., 150 A.D., to about 400, 450 A.D., when an awful lot of changes were taking place in this post-apostolic period. This is when Easter was implemented instead of the Passover, when Christmas was introduced as the birthday of Jesus Christ, even though he was not born on that day. A number of other things came in at this period of time. It was a church in transition. There was a lot of persecution of true believers during this period. It was a period of about 10 years, from 300 to about 310 A.D., or 303 to 313 A.D., under Diocletian, which terrible persecutions were brought on people that believed, people that wanted to continue keeping the Sabbath. They weren't interested in keeping Christmas or Easter. And they were killed. They were martyred for their beliefs. Notice the message here to the church in Smyrna, this era, this period of time. It was a period of persecution. These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, talking about Jesus Christ. This is a message from Jesus Christ. I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, but you're rich because you understand the truth of God. You understand the truth of God. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, people that are claiming to be God's people, and those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And this is a phrase that John uses several times. And I would suggest you write in your margin here, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, where it says, Satan has his ministers who claim to be ministers of God. But they're leading people off in a different direction. They're preaching a different gospel. They're being led by a different spirit that Paul mentions in the earlier, the earlier verses of 2 Corinthians 11. And they're really talking about a very different Jesus Christ, one that wants to get you all up in heaven and sit on a cloud and play harps and says it's okay to keep Christmas and Easter and all these other things. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And this group of people during this period of time did suffer extensively. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested and you have, will have tribulation ten days. The Bible talks about a day for a year in a number of places and this could refer directly at that time to this ten-year period of persecution under Diocletian. And it appears there's going to be persecution coming down the road. Be faithful unto death. You hang on. Don't change. Don't compromise. It's interesting that nothing negative is said about this church in Smyrna. Just as nothing is said about the Philadelphia era of God's church later on. But you'll notice we just read in verse 4... <laughs> Jesus Christ had some issues with the apostolic period of the church, but they left their first love. That's not leveled at the people of Smyrna. Pergamos, <clears throat> the third church, 
Again, Jesus Christ is mentioned here. He who, verse uh, in one or verse twelve, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamos was a government center. It was a religious center. There were a lot of temples there. Had a great library there. It was a very influential city in Asia Minor, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and do not deny and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And you might want to go back to Numbers 25 through about 31 where it talks about Balaam. Balaam was a religious leader that the Israelites encountered on their way out of Egypt and just before they came into the Promised Land. And it was his goal to uh, divert and deceive and, and orient in a different direction the Israelites. He made a curse that didn't work, so he got the ladies of, of, uh, of Moab to say, Hey guys, come on over here. We have some very interesting religious practices over here. We have fun in our religion. <laughs> Go back and read it. And the Israelite men were distracted, first by the women, and then they began worshiping idols and false gods. This was the doctrine of Balaam that pulled the Israelites off track, created a lot of problems. Thus you, have, you also have those who hold to the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. And these are also mentioned over here in verse 6 of chapter 2. What's interesting is the people in the, the apostolic era, verse 6, appear to have recognized these false teachings. However, it appears that uh, in a later time, the people of Pergamos didn't recognize where those teachings were leading. They were sucked into them because it seemed right. It seemed good. Repent. Or else I will come quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the lesson of the uh, era of Pergamos, and this would be basically from roughly 400 to about 1000 A.D., basically the Dark Ages, when the Catholic Church was literally dominating much of Europe. The lesson here is don't tolerate false doctrines. Don't listen to them. Don't fault, tolerate false teachers. Don't listen to them either. Because if you do, you're going to stumble. You're going to be tripped up. You know, Notice what Paul wrote, just a couple of quick asides here in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Now these are instructions that we need to heed, that we need to be aware of. We start in verse 7. It says, A bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not teaching his own things, not quick-tempered, not flying off, not given to wine, not violent, argumentative, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. You don't play around with doctrine. You don't play around with the teachings of the Scriptures. 
that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict, who are confused, who are going off in different directions. For there are many insubordinate that don't want to listen. They want to do their own thing. Both idle talkers and deceivers. They come up with their own ideas, their own doctrines. You know, we get a couple papers a week from people come up with their own doctrines, their own ideas. And I think, you know, the church would just be fine if it understood what God has led me to understand. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. In verse 13, it says, This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, uh, not giving heed to Jewish fables. Again, there are many Jewish fables that are still floating around today. And the commandments of men who turn from the truth. So Paul is warning the church at that time, you know, be careful, be careful with these things. Let's go next to the uh, church of Thyatira. This would be roughly from around 1,000 to 1,500 or the middle of the 1,500s, a Reformation period, and a counter-Reformation period. Thyatira was a military garrison city. It was a city of commerce. Uh, there were guilds. Uh, of craftsmen in that city. And if you didn't belong to the guild or you had to leave the guild perhaps because you kept the Sabbath or the holy days, you might lose your job. So there were trials and tribulations that these people had to deal with. These things says the Son of God who has the has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this is Jesus Christ speaking. And his feet are like fine brass. I know your works. Now this was the, the age during which there were groups throughout Europe that appeared to be linked with the Church of God. They kept the Sabbath, they kept the holy days, they followed the dietary laws. They were termed in some cases Anabaptists because they didn't believe in child baptism. They believed that adults should be baptized. Um, some of these groups had fall meetings that would correspond to the holy days. Uh, a number of, of these groups appeared to be linked with, may have been part of, the Church of God. The Waldensians would fall into this category. You know, several years ago, Ray Clore and his wife and I were visiting um, uh, some of these Waldensian valleys up in the northern part of Italy. And I remember talking with one of the young girls that was working in the library. I said, did these people keep the Sabbath? She said, some people think they did, <laughs> and some people think they didn't. I think the truth is there were Sabbath keepers among these people, just like we have Sabbath keepers today that uh, in some cases are part of the church, in some cases they're not. But this was the situation. <clears throat> I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. The Waldensians actually translated the Bible into a vernacular, sort of Italian type of language. And this was about 1,000 A.D., several hundred years before Tyndale translated the Bible into English. I know your works, your love, your faith, your patience. These people, in many cases, were upstanding citizens. They were honest. They wanted to follow their religion up in the mountains. They didn't want to be persecuted. 
And the last is more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, a woman is a type of church in Bible prophecy, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants. To beguile someone is to lead them astray. To lead them astray. To commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, bringing in false teachings. And I gave her time to repent. That is the church. Of her sexual immorality, she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her, this church, into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. And what's interesting and sobering at the same time is that some of these people who kept the Sabbath, who kept the holy days, uh, who wanted to worship God as they understood he should be worshipped from the Scriptures, because of persecution, would sit in services on Sunday and keep Christmas and keep Easter in an outward appearance while they kept other things privately. And these people came in for incredible persecution. The Pope actually decreed a crusade against the Waldensians and the Cathars that were just on the other side of the mountains to the point where armies came up where these people were, attacked their villages, buried them in shallow graves and ran a plow over top of them because they wouldn't join the Catholic Church. But they were, some of them were sitting in church on Sunday and going along on that outward appearance with Easter and Christmas. And they suffered for that. Some of them even served in armies so that they wouldn't be persecuted. See, there's a lesson of history there. You can't sit where things are being taught the wrong way. You can't stay in places like that. You can't give the appearance of going along with it. Because this happened historically. And these people suffered for doing that. See, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're going to repeat the mistakes of history. And then we'll pay for the consequences if we do that. See, that's why these things are here for our admonition, so that we can learn. You know, the lesson of this particular era is that you don't compromise your beliefs. You don't kind of go along with things because it kind of looks good and, and nobody's going to come down on you. See, the church at Smyrna didn't do that. They stood up for their beliefs and they died for them. You have a very powerful lesson. Verse 25, it says, Hold fast what you have till I come. You hang on to the truth that God has given you to understand and you don't let go of it. The Sardis here, chapter 3. It says, to the angel of Sardis, this was a once famous city for arts and crafts and wealth, but uh, it was in decline. And again, there are historical parallels that run with the message. These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. These appear to be the people that Mr. Armstrong came in contact with in the 20s. They had a name. Some of these people died for their beliefs in London. 
It was a Sabbath-keeping church, the Milliard Church. And I believe uh, the pastor of that church was thrown in jail along with his wife. They cut his head off, put his head on a stake outside the church to encourage people. <laughs> you don't do what he did. And apparently his wife died in jail because she didn't compromise her beliefs. Those churches grew around London. The Sabbath, the knowledge of the Sabbath came to the United States, to Newport, Rhode Island, by Peter Mumford, or Stephen Mumford. It, those churches grew. You know, the church in, in Rhode Island, about a thousand members of that church in the 1700s. First two governors of Rhode Island were Sabbath keepers. These were people that started Brown University. Very influential at that time, and spilled down into New Jersey and then further west. You go back there today, there's not much left. People don't keep the Sabbath. There's hardly anybody in those churches. Things have moved on. He says, I know your works, you have a name, but you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, and they're about to die. They're about to die. For I have not found your works perfect. You know, I'd never heard of these people until I came in contact with the Church of God and got into church history. Because these people are not making a big impact on the world today. The truth that they understood was beginning to die. And God called Mr. Armstrong, and it appears he used him very powerfully. That brings us down to... Uh, Let's do this. The lesson of the church of uh, Sardis is don't let the truth die. Don't let the truth die. And one of the reasons that we started Living University is to perpetuate the truth of God to another generation and to other individuals that will be able to preach that truth and explain that truth. And explain the knowledge of God's truth. What happened to the truth in the church down through the ages? Where it got off track? And where other teachings were brought in? See, if we let go of that information, it'll be lost and somebody else will have to discover it. Don't let the truth die. Strengthen what you have and bear fruit with that truth. Is a lesson of this particular church, the Philadelphia era. The Philadelphia church, it's the church of brotherly love, and that's something we need to work on. Sometimes I think we may think, well, we know the truth, but we also have to have love for one another. As Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, that this love and understanding for one another, the way we treat each other, is really what's going to set the church apart. Now, the truth will also set the church apart. But if we have the truth and don't have love, then we're going to be in trouble because we don't have the big picture. It's a faithful church. It says, These things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. And you might want to go back to Isaiah chapter 22 where it talks about uh, these keys were symbolic of an office in government, has to do with government, has to do with loyalty. 
that the keys were taken from one individual, given to another individual, that who would be faithful with the mission that he was given. And this is talking about a church that has been faithful and is to be faithful. He who opens and no one shuts, he who shuts and no one opens. I think it's more than a coincidence that when God called Mr. Armstrong in the late 20s, radio was just coming in at that time. KDKA Pittsburgh was one of the big stations that started. Uh, And he was able to use that medium of radio to begin preaching the gospel. And then television developed. And now we have the Internet that literally goes all around the world. And some people say the work is over. Mr. Armstrong finished it. (laughs) Now, we have got more potential today than Mr. Armstrong ever had. And our challenge is to learn how to use it effectively. So God opens doors. I know your works. We published almost 10 million magazines that were circulating at one time. We were the biggest purchaser of radio religious time in the world. God opens doors, and he uses individuals to go through those doors. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut. You have a little strength. You're not going to be a big church. You're going to have a little strength. But you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. You know, what was the word that Jesus Christ gave to his church? Mark sixteen fifteen. You go into all the world and you preach the gospel to everyone. You can't do that sitting in your living room. Now, you may be very sincere. But we have a corporate responsibility. It was interesting, the woman who's heading up the Episcopal Church in this country made an interesting statement a month or two ago. She said, this idea that Christianity is all about you and God is one of the biggest misunderstandings of Western Christianity. She said, there is a corporate responsibility that we have as a church to preach the gospel. Mr. Armstrong used to say that. It's not about just you and God, about getting you saved. You've been called into the church to do a job, to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to the world, and that takes a team. There's a corporate responsibility that comes with our calling. Jesus said, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew 10, verse 6, he said, you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To do that, you've got to know who they are and where they are. (laughs) Otherwise, you're going to be spinning your wheels. In Matthew 10, and I think it's about verse 22 or 23, he said, you will not have gone over all the cities of Israel before I come. Mr. Armstrong didn't finish the work. You're going to be working at it. You should be working at it when I come. That's our corporate responsibility. Luke 1 Verse 17, we're to be preparing a people for Jesus Christ when he returns. See, our challenge today is find out who's doing these things. Where is it being done? Isaiah 58, verse 1. You know, Isaiah was told, you cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins because those sins are going to bring consequences. You know, this idea that ministers and preachers today can pass off 
same-sex marriage as being fine and okay and it's okay with God and so on. You know, the president made a comment about, just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's okay. And ignore everything else. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, what God inspired in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. See, they're not preaching according to the Word of God. Now, is it going to be popular to say these things? Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, here come the tomatoes (laughs) and a bunch of other things. See, it's not going to be popular to deliver that kind of message. The prophets were thrown in prison, killed, cut in half, because they had a message that people didn't want to hear. But we've got a message to deliver. Ezekiel 33 and 33, Ezekiel was told, you be a watchman to the house of Israel, not to the Jews necessarily and only, but to the house of Israel. You tell them what's coming so that hopefully they'll change. This is what we've been called to do. In verse 9, it says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, here's the phrase again, who say they are Jews or say they are God's people, but they're not. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. And he's talking to the Philadelphia era of the church. I can't make excuses for that. You can't make excuses for that. That's what it says. Because you have kept my command to persevere, you continue doing what I ask you to do, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins, to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you or protect you from the hour of trial which has come upon the whole world. It's talking about the tribulation. If you do what I've asked you to do, I'm going to protect you from the tribulation. He doesn't make that same promise to the next church. See, these things are here for our admonition to help us to avoid problems that are coming. Verse 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast that which you have, that no man takes your crown. Don't let go of the truth. Don't stop doing what I've asked you to do. Finally, the Laodicean church. Laodicea was a very imposing city. It was a proud, prosperous city. It was a banking center. had very imposing fortifications, but it was built in a valley. It was vulnerable. Philadelphia was built on a hill. Philadelphia was built on a hill. It was very defensible. Philadelphia was a missionary church. It was an outpost that spread Greek and Roman culture and then spread the Christian message. Philadelphia was destroyed several times by earthquakes. But it was rebuilt, continued to function. Whereas Laodicea was a much more imposing city. But it was vulnerable. It was built in a valley. Its water supply was six miles away. All you have to do is break up the aqueduct. And you don't have any water coming. When the water arrived, it was warm. didn't taste very good. I know your works. So there's going to be works. It says you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Then the decision would be very easy. You know, what to do with you, how to treat you. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
And it's interesting, Laos means people. It's a it's the country today, Laos. It means people. And the other part of the word has something to do with making decisions or judging, making judgments. So it's the people doing things. And that's a prescription for chaos historically and biblically. You can look in uh, Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, at the end of the book. It says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a very chaotic time in ancient Israel. In Jeremiah 23, about verse 17, it says, everybody did what was, uh, they followed their own imaginations. In other words, they did their own thing. I remember growing up in the 50s, watching television commercials. Tomorrow is Sunday. Go to the church of your choice. Where you just make up your own mind, do whatever you want to do. That's not according to Scripture. Because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you don't recognize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. You don't even see your own situation clearly. You know, the, this, this Laodicean attitude, uh, this Laodicean spirit that's kind of laid back and focused on themselves, doing some sort of a work, uh, is going to be predominant during the end of the age. I mean, that's, that's the whole parallel here. It's going to follow the Philadelphia era, and it will be dominant as we approach the end of the age. And brethren, we've got to be careful we don't get sucked into this. That's the whole message here. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. When you get gold out of a furnace, the impurities have been burned off. And if you're the gold, you're not going to be very comfortable. Wow, that was hot. That hurt. But, you know, I don't think this way anymore. I don't function that way anymore because I've gotten rid of these impurities or God has gotten rid of them as a result of the trials we've been through. That you may be rich in white garments, you purchase those. The Laodiceans apparently had a bunch of black sheep there and produced black wool. And what uh, Paul is saying, you change. You change totally. That you may be clothed, that you may, uh, the shame of your nakedness may be uh, removed. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. God loves all of his people. And he will rebuke and chasten us. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, this is Jesus Christ talking to this church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, when somebody comes to your door, they don't come inside and knock on the door. <laughs> they knock from the outside. The implication, Jesus Christ is not within this church. He's not within these people. I mean, that's the implication. An interesting uh, comment that was made in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It says, many commentaries view Laodiceans as half-hearted Christians. However, the terminology and the context suggest that they are merely professing Christians who lack authentic conversion. Because Jesus Christ is not within them. He's on the outside knocking. See, the lesson for us is we've got to be attentive to the knocking of Jesus Christ. We've got to want to do what Jesus Christ did. We want to follow his teachings, not argue with the scriptures. 
We've got a job to do. Let's conclude since we're basically out of time. <laughs> How does all this history and prophecy relate to us today? Very quickly, in John 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus warned his disciples that difficult times were coming because he wanted them to be prepared for what was coming. Now, history tells us what happened. Disciples and believers were persecuted, martyred, run out of cities. We see down through history there were numerous departures from the truth in this century, that century, that century, that century. Many times people left. Many times false doctrines were brought in. Matthew 24, we didn't discuss that in an extent, but Jesus prophesied there. that false religions, false religious teachers would dominate the end of the age and that true Christians would be persecuted again as we approach the end of the age. And who are their persecutors? Basically the same people that persecuted the early church, religious leaders who think they're doing God's will and government leaders who are influenced by these religious leaders. If we are going to endure to the end and fulfill the mission that God has given us, we've got to be able to understand the record of history, learn the lessons of history. We've got to be able to recognize where the truth of God is being preached and what that truth is. We have got to be actively engaged in preaching the gospel to the world. And Bible prophecy tells us that the church that is going to do that is small, it's persecuted, but God is going to open doors and make it possible to do that. We're also told that the dominant group or spirit or attitude at the end of the age within the churches of God is going to be this Laodicean attitude that is really focused on self. It'll do some sort of a work, but is not focused on powerfully preaching the truth of God to the world. Brethren, these historical and prophetic concepts that we've talked about today are important admonitions from Jesus Christ. They're important admonitions from Jesus Christ given to us because he loves us. He wants us to make it into the kingdom of God. He doesn't want us to be lost along the way. The letters to the seven churches contain important lessons of history recorded for our admonition so that we don't repeat the mistakes of history. Let's remember that Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ said to the seven churches. Let's heed these prophecies. Let's learn these vital lessons of history so that we can be prepared for the challenges that are coming and that we can be in the coming kingdom of God.